I was in my garden this morning, planting tulip bulbs, when a tiny little girl pedaled by on her pink bike, silver streamers glittering, grinning dad in tow. She stepped in front of me and asked me what I was doing. I told her that I was playing in the dirt, and she nodded and paused for a moment, and then thoughtfully confessed that she sometimes plays in the dirt too. And then off she went, waved goodbye, but abruptly stopped a few meters later to admire Lola, my black and white cat, who usually hides behind tall plants, just out of reach of leashed dogs passing by. But today she was weaving figure eights between my neighbor M's long legs. He was also working in his front yard. I'm probably thinking about my neighbor a bit too much these days. But before you rush over to take my marital pulse, let me explain. Em had a stroke one early summer day, and I, like many of our neighbors, have been worried about him, bringing soup, baking bread, checking in. I had seen him earlier that morning on his way back from the hardware store, he told me that he was feeling a bit off and was going to sit down for a while. His other neighbor called an ambulance when she spoke with him a few hours later. By then his speech was slurred. None of us thought he'd ever come home again. He is 87, has lived alone since his wife died, never had children. He grew up on a small farm along the St. Lawrence River in the Gas Bay. One of many children, another world, a different life. When we moved here 16 years ago, a thick cedar hedge, 10 feet tall, separated us from him. Over the years, he has thinned the hedge, tree by tree, revealing a backyard that has us wondering as Tom Waits barks in his smoky voice, what is he building back there? He keeps what looks like an abandoned missile or a rocket ship amongst the shrubs. Raccoons have taken over an old collapsing shed, and five neighbors pushed his car, the red one that he drove last spring, muffler hanging low, into the back corner. Em is hoping to fix it, stripping handy parts from the two other cars that he keeps for just this purpose. And in all that jungle, he grows tomatoes, grapes, and marigolds. For years, on bitterly cold winter mornings, my husband and I have sometimes woken early to the sound of scraping snow and ice. With embarrassment and adoration, we shake our heads from our bedroom windows as we watched M clear the snow off our car, our driveway, our front steps. And in the heat of summer, wearing a tidy shirt buttoned to the neck and wrists, he paints and fixes neighbors' fences and garages pushes an ancient lawnmower up and down the street. One afternoon, he brought us ripe tomatoes that he'd grown from seeds in spring, 
had planted along south-facing walls of neighboring houses. We'd half of them that night and remembered how we'd watched him from our porch, followed his slow summer visits to each vine, watering can in hand. I know that one day he will be gone, and his ochre yellow house, its neon orange window sills and dark green roof will come crashing down, and new straight walls will block our late day sun. The neighborhood is changing, and we're trying to remember what had been here and there before along the main street. New stores have taken the spaces left by old, worn-out ones. The House of Staples, which sold staples, staplers, and paper clips in bulk. The cake decorating store and its pink icing and plastic wedding grooms and brides. Abandoned car lots. They're all gone now. Most of the dive bars have left their sticky floors, to craft beer and charcuterie boards. The hardware store is the canary in the coal mine. Once it goes, I might leave here too, gentrification having tipped the scale. And of course, with these new stores come new neighbors, though I do wonder what's happened to the down and outs. For now, St. Vincent de Paul, our local charity shop, is where we all mingle the old and the new, nod our approval at each other's finds, and then haul our treasures home. An old man once told me that not so long ago this city was a forest. Then the Algonquin people called it home. Later Europeans came, took that land and cleared it and farmed the rocky ground. Someone built a tram line from east to west. Then came sidewalks and hydro lines. Who is to say when a neighborhood should freeze in time? When is it at its prime? Against all odds and days after M came home from hospital, he was, once again, high up on a ladder, working to keep out the raccoon's expanding family. But first, before closing up the gaping hole the animals had chewed into the soffit and the fascia, he built a long, narrow ramp. One by one, one hazy summer evening, I watched six raccoons skulk their resentful way down and caught the slow, low, hopeful tunes of Patsy Cline drifting out of M's open window.